Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Whether integrating lunch counters of the South or leading the largest school boycott in the North, the young people of the modern civil rights movement were out in front fighting for desegregation. And 10 years ago, when a young black man was killed while walking home in his Florida neighborhood, three young black women responded by creating a protest movement called Black Lives Matter. Driven by what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the fierce urgency of now, these challengers of the status quo stepped into the struggle for racial justice. On this 39th anniversary of MLK Day, a look at the legacy and the future of the ongoing struggle for black civil rights by the young people who've put it all on the line to lead it. Later in the show, on this eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there's new evidence that the civil rights icon's life and the civil rights movement have been willfully misinterpreted. This is part of what's become a public battle over teaching the documented history of race in America. A distinguished professor of political science and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author are both sounding the alarm about the spread of myths and misinformation about the nation's racial history. But first, joining me now, Curtis Bunn, one of the co-authors of Say Their Names. Bunn is an award-winning journalist at NBC News Black and the best-selling author of 10 novels centering on Black life in America. Hello, Curtis. Thanks for having me. Patrice Gaines is also a co-author of Say Their Names. Gaines is a former Washington Post reporter and Pulitzer Prize finalist and the author of a memoir. Hi, Patrice. Hi there. It's my pleasure to be here. And I'm happy to have you. Professor V.P. Franklin is the author of The Young Crusaders, the untold story of the children and teenagers who galvanized the civil rights movement. He is a distinguished professor emeritus of history and education at the University of California, Riverside. Welcome, Professor Franklin. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Well, I'm going to start with you, Professor Franklin, because your book goes back several decades, uh, looking at the young people, which you make clear in your book, were active in the 30s, 40s, and early 1950s, um, well before we think of the modern civil rights movement of the 60s. And they were drawn, as you say, because they understood that they were living with these disadvantages. Talk about overall who these young people were and why it was important for you to document uh, their work. I was always interested in what the children and teenagers were doing in the civil rights movement as a result of work that I had done for an earlier book called My Soul is a Witness, quote, Chronology of the Civil Rights Era, 1954 to 1965. And that was published way back in 2001. And while I was doing the research on that, all of these incidents around the country 
uh, involving children uh, I was able to identify. And so my focus was on the period from 1954 through 1969. And so, so, so I built upon work done by earlier historians who looked at the 1930s, mentioned children and teenagers' activities in the 1930s, the 1940s, and then my work began in the 1950s and 1960s, documenting teenagers and children's civil rights activism in school and outside of school uh, during those periods. So I have to say, there are a dizzying number of marches and sit-ins and protests that, that you have identified and have some stories about. I think I'm well-informed, and I had no idea. Um, so I'm feeling pretty ignorant after I, I read your book. So I have to believe that when you began, you didn't know how m- much young children, and when we say young children, we mean younger than high school, and then we mean high school and college students were involved in these protests. Yes. I, oh, yes, definitely the case. Uh, we knew about Birmingham. We knew about Little Rock. We knew about uh, New Orleans and the children there. But as I began, as I began reading newspapers, uh, the New York Times, the Southern School News, even Jet Magazine, they, they, they covered these uh, protests that were organized by uh, high school students uh, in th- in throughout the South. And then also they documented the large boycotts, school boycotts that occurred in major U.S. cities in the 1960s. Uh, that had not been really discussed in any detail. Uh, you, where you had in Chicago, for example, you had 225,000 elementary and secondary school students participating in the boycott. You had in New York, you had over 300,000. And then, and then, and those students who were boycotted also enrolled in these freedom schools. We associate the freedom schools with the Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. But they they were modeled after the freedom schools that had been opened earlier in the protests in Chicago, uh, New York, and then eventually in Cleveland and and Baltimore and and, and, and other cities. And and, and, and in those cases, in those places, those were actually the largest civil rights campaigns that took place in those cities. And so so they've they've not been integrated into our understanding of civil rights activism in the 1960s. So how would you assess the critical importance of the participation of these young people, as you've just discussed, in all these places we didn't know about and then some that we did? Could the uh, civil rights organizers have gotten as far as they got without them? No, uh, not not in the case of the school boycotts. Those school boycotts, those depended on the, on the elementary and secondary school students agreeing to participate in the strike, to not to go to school on days that were designated by the civil rights leaders, and so that and so that was it was dependent on that. The children and teenagers were a part of civil rights protests that were organized by the adults. And of course, we know that it was the case when they were desegregating elementary schools and, and secondary schools and colleges, et cetera. But at the same time, the children and the teenagers organized protests on their own. And in some places, they actually took over the, the uh, protest uh, campaigns in those cities. And so, uh, and so in many places, 
in most places where you had broad community participation in these protests, a large percentage, in some cases, the majority of the participants were teenagers and young people. So over to you, Curtis and Patrice, because uh, I want to pick up on something that Professor Franklin said, that these protests most of the time were organized by the adults. Of course, they the children did some on their own. But I think it's safe to say, you correct me if I'm wrong, that when it comes to Black Lives Matter, that organization um, bubbled up from from young people. I mean, they sort of took control over that, you know, from the beginning, from the founding and then and then more. But I'm really interested in your speaking to the link between the people that Professor Franklin calls the young crusaders and the activists who are a part of Black Lives Matter. Do you see that link from those young people to yours, Curtis Bunn? I do. Um, but like you, this was an education just hearing about Dr. Franklin's book and that young people were so actively involved in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, th- th- this is an education of revelation for me, and it speaks to the value of reading and these stories being available to everyone. The, the Black Lives Matter founders were not as young as, as high school students, but they were young people who took the initiative. Obviously, they rallied around the George Zimmerman verdict of not guilty in killing Trayvon Martin. And it exploded in a way in which they probably didn't anticipate in it um, becoming the largest social justice movement in history. Um, But I chronicle in our book that our co-author with Patrice and three other fantastic journalists uh, say their names, how black lives came to matter in America, that there are young people, high school students who are not old enough to vote, who are taking the lead now in protests and galvanizing students, their peers, so that they can become the next influx of leaders. And I thought that was very encouraging about uh, all of this come out of what has taken place in the last year and a half, two years, that there are young people who are saying, we aren't gonna stand for this. They respect Dr. King and appreciate and respect the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, but they are adamant about being involved and doing it a different way uh, demanding rather than requesting and marching, uh, which is obviously uh, taken from the civil rights movement, but marching in a way in which it is, at least we saw in 2020, there's unrelenting that's galvanizing around the country. And, and one thing about the Black Lives Matters founders is that they learned from the civil rights movement that I shared in the book. They felt like the movement led by Dr. King was Dr. King's movement in a sense, and that once he was assassinated, that meant the movement lost most of its uh, vitality. They, they are saying they have multiple leaders and every outlet that they have of these satellite Black Lives Matters organizations around the country are all leaders who can step in. So they're saying, we're, we're ready to die for this, but the movement won't die because we have a bunch of leaders younger than us just as enthusiastic as us who will take over. Well, let's take a listen to a group of young teen activists who mobilized some massive BLM protests through social media. They were in Tennessee. 
I decided to protest so that I could see all the people around me who do want change like me. And I really wanted to like see change locally. Me and Jade were both like, this can't be the end. Jade decided to also help organize a protest and that's when I joined. So that's when we found these posts online about the one on June 4th. We didn't have an organization because we're 14, 15, 16. Jade came up with the name Teens for Equality, made an Instagram and we promoted our protest for that. We expected 800 to 1,000. To even see 800 plus people there it was mind-boggling because i was just like we did this so patrice um there they are talking about how young they are and how they feel compelled to be doing this kind of activist work in this moment one of the things that your book does in addition to highlight the young leaders who are stepping forward is you really hone in on the issues that they think are outstanding for them. And in your particular chapter, I should say there's 12 essays in the book, and you hone in on mass incarceration, police brutality, some of those issues that drove some of these young people to the streets to begin with. So how do you see the the leadership of young people in Black Lives Matter? And is it a little bit different from what happened with the young crusaders of Professor Franklin's book? Well, it is absolutely uh, different and in some ways feel the same. The importance of that book, I was thinking of how empowering it would be for books like that to be used to teach uh, civic social studies so that uh, young people can indeed see the power that they do have and how to express themselves in using that. One of the things that the young people today are fortunate enough to have is uh, technology. <laughs> as, you, as we heard in that piece, you know, they can put something uh, on the internet uh, and get people, you know, on a corner, organized in, in no time at all. And so this being able to communicate in that way when, of course, in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, it, even the 60s, it was difficult to even get the news media to cover black protests. And so they definitely have that in their favor and, and they are using it. Um, you know, they, they know how to use it. I was uh, talking to a parent recently who said that her daughter had used Roblox, um, which is usually a gaming app. But in fact, she found out that her daughter was meeting with a, a young group of a young Black Lives Matter group, and her daughter's in middle school. And so this app that she usually plays, you know, games on, they were now meeting, they were having discussions, uh, they had speakers. And for the parents, she was relieved to find out that this child had a resource, you know, where she and her friends, her, her peers could collectively express their thoughts and their concerns, their anger, and their frustration. So I think that they have learned a lot, uh, these young people, from what has happened in, in the past, but they also are using that in new ways, you know, to organize around the same issues, unfortunately. What I think is interesting, um, Curtis, is that the way that the young crusaders of Professor Franklin's book, now when people look back, they see that as a success, the work that they did, and they think that that's the only way to do it. So, uh, following up on what Patrice just said about their using uh, social media and other kinds of ways uh, and BLM to to reach out and to um, address the issues that are important to them. What do you think about Black Lives Matter sort of uh, uh, being thought of as 
not doing it right. That's what a lot of people say. You're not, you're not doing protest right or activism right because they think the gold standard, as they understood it to be, is uh, what happened during the modern civil rights movement. I think it's admirable that they have this position that they want to do something. So, yeah, it may be different, but it's a different time. And they're leveraging, as um, Patrice said, they're leveraging technology. And they're, they're a little, probably a little bit more radical, too. They look at what has happened. They weren't around in the 60s. We see the progress, but they don't necessarily see this progress because they weren't around. They just were born into a world where they saw these discrepancies, but they, don't, they weren't really fully uh, aware or um, in tune to how bad it had been. So when my parents say how far we've come, and I say how far we've come to them, it doesn't really necessarily register the same way because they weren't born, they were born into a different time. And they're saying, okay, you guys may have come so far, but there's been a wall and we want to knock that wall down. And this is the way to do it. And we're not going to be passive. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to be unrelenting. We're going to galvanize through uh, social media. I I think it's closed-minded to say they're doing it the wrong way. They're doing it a different way. And it's a way that has been effective because Black Lives Matter has initiated change, some change in laws. And more importantly, it's initiated a conversation that is continues to carry on. And you can't ignore the fact that Black people are here. Black people are standing up for themselves and want what's right, want justice, want equality, all these issues that are coming out of this. So while it may not be the same, it certainly has been effective to some degree. And But obviously, there's much more work to do. And they seem to be really committed to to doing that work. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Curtis Bunn and Patrice Gaines, co-authors of Say Their Names, How Black Lives Came to Matter in America, and V.P. Franklin, Distinguished Professor Emeritus and author of The Young Crusaders, The Untold Story of the Children and Teenagers Who Galvanized the Civil Rights Movement. We're talking about the young leaders who are the next wave of the social justice movement. Back to you, Professor Franklin, because I think in both of your books, there are very important moments that galvanize the young people. So you're talking in your, your title of your book, Professor Franklin, is about how they galvanize the movement. But in the time of the modern civil rights movement, as you point out, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott and then later Birmingham, Alabama, was extremely important to getting these young people engaged in participating in their for their own futures. I think you agree that Birmingham was a seminal moment for young people's participation. Oh, yes. The Birmingham protest was extremely important, and I uh, devote much time to it. Uh, and document uh, the experiences of, of those uh, teenagers and, and young children who participated. And then I deal with how the other students in other parts of the country, high school students and elementary school students, responded to what they saw and what they heard about what went on in Birmingham. And one of the weapons that the students used that was extremely important, but that has not been utilized that much by the Black Lives Matter generation is the boycott. You had elementary school, high school students boycotting. When the Birmingham protests took place, high school students around the clubs boycotted their high school over issues that they 
that were similar to the issues that were important in Birmingham. You had the boycotts that were associated with the school desegregation campaigns, and you had boycotts that were took place in many cities, high school students boycotting to get black faculty members in public in, in their high school, to get black history courses in their high school, to get improved physical conditions in the school. And it's really uh, surprising that the Black Lives Matter generation has not utilized it. For example, uh, there are all of the protests about the uh, climate, about the fossil fuel industry. Now, why don't the young people utilize the boycott and say, okay, we want to improve our future by boycotting one of these major fossil fuel companies and then let, let that be an example for the other fossil fuel companies. The, the, the failure to utilize the boycott is sort of uh, letting a major weapon not being utilized. Well, you know, what's interesting to point out, because for people who don't know, Birmingham, Alabama and the campaign, that is the one where uh, Bull Connor, who was the head law enforcement person, released water hoses and dogs on the children. Then those were photos and the story went worldwide and that had a great impact on uh, Congress and the rest of America, for that matter, which helped move toward getting the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act eventually. I think the other thing that needs to be said with regard to the Black Lives Matter protesters is that these children and young people were doing this at a great amount of danger to themselves, uh, and they understood that. So I want to just uh, play just a little clip from some of the older people now who were young at the time of the Birmingham movement. My mother knew about it, and she told me not to march, don't leave the school ground, but I did anyway. Droves of us left school and walked to 16th Street. We saw the kids coming into the 16th Street Baptist Church, and we were elated. They made it. They made it. We sang some freedom songs. We said some prayers. They reminded us this was a nonviolent movement. And with those instructions, we were lined up in pairs, walked down those steps singing, We Shall Overcome. Now, back to you, Curtis and Patrice. I'll start with you, Patrice. Um, the boycott may not be used as a tactic in this moment with uh, Black Lives Matter, but they are in the streets and at great risk to their physical persons because they've really been attacked in the streets, though, to be clear, they are nonviolent protest group, but yet they've been called terrorists and everything else. But for them, the seminal issue was George Floyd. So if Birmingham was that to the Young Crusaders for the Black Lives Matter I would say, uh, even though there were many other say their names that they could say uh, prior to George Floyd's death, I think that was a critical moment. So what do you say, Patrice? Well, absolutely. And, and I would say, too, we can't even forget there's courage all around. You know, there was courage to get out there, of course, in the street for those school children. And there's the courage like, I mean, when I think about Darnell Frazier, who simply um, you know, held her telephone camera and videotaped Derek Chauvin killing um, George Floyd, you know, to just be able to have the courage to stand there and do that and to videotape the other officers who were doing absolutely nothing when she was threatened and when the other people who were standing there were threatened and told to leave. And yet she did that. You know, they have different tools and different ways of, of accomplishing change today. But they, as we well know, use that videotape 
quite a bit. And the thing is, I have to say, when I was growing up and I watched the black and white, um, you know, broadcast on TV of the children marching in Birmingham, it didn't look empowering to me at the time. It didn't look like those young people had power because, of course, I saw, you know, them being uh, knocked down by those powerful water hose and attacked by the police dogs. And I saw these, you know, grown white men chasing them. And it took time for that to have an impact and for me to understand that, indeed, that that was courage and that was power. But today, I think what the young people see is they see also a different kind of power when they see people standing up like that with a, in protest. You know, we see young people with signs, you know, that say Black Lives Matter. When they see someone like Darnell Frazier, who will, you know, risk everything to say, you know, you're going to look at this America. So I think, you know, our children have really always been courageous now as a parent we parents have always been fearful because we have also had to be fearful in ways that white parents have not had to be fearful i do want to come back to you curtis and and patrice and and mention this that something that the young crusaders in uh, professor franklin's book had uh, were the institutional backing that i don't think seems to be there for a lot of the young Uh, Black Lives Matter activists. For example, there certainly was the church, which you've made clear in your book, in one of the other essays, that that's just not been around uh, in support for Black Lives Matter, not been out in front. And then the NAACP um, had sponsored a lot of youth councils during the time of the modern civil rights movement. That is an institution Those kinds of organizations, youth-related organizations tied to traditional organizations, don't seem to exist. Curtis, how do you see that? There also was not the support of the public health community, because if we recall 2020, they were marching during the pandemic, and Black lives were being lost at an alarming rate, more so than any other race in America. And so the public health community was very concerned about these young people or anybody taking the streets in protests. But at the same time, the fearlessness of these young people was was brought out. They saw it as an opportunity uh, despite the risk, despite the risk of police retaliation, despite the lack of support from the church, the NAACP, public health officials, that this was all worth it. Patrice, do you think lack of institutional support, as the way I've described it, means something in the future shaping of Black Lives Matter? Well, you know what? I, I mean, it means something. Now, what, what it means, I think, we don't know yet, and we'll have to see as this evolves. I think that, uh, unfortunately, some of this has to do with how you pass on generational knowledge, and some of it has to do with the fact that some of us elders have to step back and really respect the courage and and the knowledge that these younger people have at the same time. In doing that, I believe that will allow an exchange of information. And so I think we're kind of, we're just in that period, you know, of of evolution where that kind of transition is, is beginning to happen. Everyone is questioning now what next and how do we all move forward and how do we um, mesh this knowledge that, you know, that each group has. 
I'm always impressed uh, when I go back and read Reverend King's words and find some that seem like they were written yesterday for this moment. And I found this quote from him. He says, Today our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. Now, I take that as his sort of speaking to future leaders of this struggle that he would never meet and seeing them connected to the work that he was doing in the moment. How do you see it, Professor Franklin? Oh, I think that Dr. King's message and that particular message and his message in general is multi-generational and universal. There's still a great amount of oppression and inequality, poverty uh, that exists in the United States and in and throughout the world. And the, the condition, the situation that the young people are facing today are, are actually worse than um, the ones that the young crusaders faced in the 1950s and 1960s. There's the climate crisis that, that we faced. There's the student debt issue that they faced. There's, and also there's the issue of the, the of inequality, the extreme inequality that exists in American society. And so that Dr. King's message about the need for change is, is relevant and important and, and, and one that the young people can take to heart and move on their own. And I think his, his charge is said in his words to adjust to new ideas and to remain vigilant, Patrice. Yes, you know, and the thing is, uh, these problems we have today present themselves differently. Uh, Professor Franklin mentioned uh, the climate issues and, you know, environmental racism, and uh, there's mass incarceration, and all of them go back to that root, to me, of a, a, a system that supports white supremacy or devalues the lives of black people. And so that, you know, uh, it, t- it takes a while uh, to, for us to change that. But I'm proud of the fact that no one has ever stopped fighting, not the children, not the adults, and, and no one ever will stop. Uh, when your spirit is called to do that kind of work, you will do it until your last breath. And I'd just like to add, I'd like to add that that passage that you read, the first words were stay awake. And in today's vernacular is stay woke, Uh, that white supremacy will always reign supreme, that we are going to have to face, uh, create new ideas, new leaders so that we can face it. So we can not only face it, but confront it aggressively to overcome it. Well, I thank all of you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Curtis Bunn is a co-author of Say Their Names, How Black Lives Came to Matter in America. Bunn is an award-winning journalist at the NBC News Black and the best-selling author of 10 novels centering on black life in America. Patrice Gaines is also a co-author of Say Their Names. Gaines is a former Washington Post reporter and Pulitzer Prize finalist and the author of a memoir. V.P. Franklin is the author of The Young Crusaders, The Untold Story of the Children and Teenagers Who Galvanized the Civil Rights Movement. He is a distinguished professor emeritus of history and education at the University of California, Riverside. Coming up, the debate about how or even whether to teach the history of race in America has recently devolved into spectacular shouting sessions. 
beyond the objections to the teaching of critical race theory, which for the record is not being taught in K through 12 schools. Some have gone so far as to suggest that classroom discussions about slavery or even how George Floyd was killed should not be taught. What is the impact of this campaign of disinformation on civil rights and race history in America? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley.